You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am so, so excited. I always say that, but in this case, I really, truly am. I'm always excited, but I'm really, truly excited to have with me Rohini Sengupta. Rohini is Director of Sustainability and Decarbonization for United Airlines. So um, United is the first airline. we've. I've talked SAF um, in the past, it's the Sustainable Aviation Fuel, um, but United is the first airline to actually join the podcast to actually talk about SAF. So I'm so excited. I want to get into the issues. Rohini, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tammy, and thank you for having me. Really, really uh, excited to Talk about my favorite topic and, and hopefully a few others after after our chat. <laughs> well, it's one of mine too. So in this uh, low carbon decarbonization world we're, go- we're going into here, this energy transition. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, who don't know what SAP is, can you talk about what it is and United's really historical involvement in developing and testing and now using the product. It goes back a number of years. Yeah, it does. Thank you. So SAF, and it's I totally agree, it's important to sort of <laughs> get the definitions and, and the acronyms. We live in an acronym-heavy world in, in aviation. Um, SAF, it's identical to fossil jet fuel or the jet fuel we use today. And in fact, um, we refer to it as the term conventional jet fuel. So it's identical in properties, but it's made from renewable resources. So what that means is on a life cycle basis, it emits fewer greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's actually transitioning to SAF usage is one of the most scalable and, and sort of readily available uh, in terms of infrastructure mechanisms and technologies to decarbonize the industry because it performs the exact same way as conventional jet fuel. You don't have to build new infrastructure. You don't need to make new uh, tanks. Hopefully you just need to make them for more fuel. Um, but on a life cycle basis, it can it can emit up to 85% less greenhouse gases or greenhouse gas emissions than that conventional jet fuel. And that's really the importance of it. And, you know, like you said, Tammy, there is, there's such a rich history we have at United with SAF because we've long believed it's the, it's the primary technology solution to decarbonize, not just United, but the industry. So way back in 2011, we, um, we tested actually an algae-based jet fuel, which is very interesting on a test flight um, from Houston to O'Hare. And since then, lots of firsts. So 2016, we started using SAF on a regular basis. It was out of our uh, Los Angeles hub airport at the time. And since then, we've added SAF usage to uh, Amsterdam, to San Francisco most recently. And we're anticipating bringing more on in London Heathrow later this year. And, you know, just because it's being commercially made at some volumes today, it doesn't mean that we have, we've stopped our support and kind of the testing program. So it actually as recently as late 2021, 
we flew the first ever passenger flight containing 100% SAF, meaning it's not blended with any conventional jet fuel, oh, wow. but it's actually pure SAF in one of the engines and showing that there is a pathway over time toward replacing our jet fuel with SAF. And, and it was, I promised the flight went smooth. I was on it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it's just been really exciting to be able to both flex our operational resources and lend those toward scaling what is such an important technology. So you sort of highlighted this um, uh, a few minutes ago, but how does SAF fit into United's commitment to reach net zero by 2050? And then what other strategies are there? Because yeah, I look at it and it is, it's a, it's a real tough thing, thing because one can only improve efficiency, you know, like so much right now. And we don't have alternatives that have been widely discussed out there like hydrogen, like battery electric. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly how you stated it. You know, the important thing to keep in mind is 98% of our greenhouse gas footprint is associated with combusting jet fuel. So the root, you know, the the what is not a, a complicated question. We sort of figured out the problem there. So for us, getting to net zero, first and foremost, is reducing the amount of fuel we use. But we just can't reduce all the way to zero. We need uh, a liquid fuel, particularly for some of these medium to long haul flights. So the way I look at it is we reduce the fuel we can use through several levers, and then the remainder we have to replace with a sustainable alternative like SAF. Um, we actually just completed an exercise and published uh, a roadmap, our decarbonization roadmap, which shows essentially it's our business as usual emissions growth through 2050. And then by levers, operational and technology levers, the ways we're going to reduce that business as usual emissions all the way down to zero by 2050. And so about 45% of it is actually fuel reduction. Mm -hmm. And that's things like more fuel efficient aircraft and more efficient operations. It's how many seats you put on a plane. You know, those things really, really are impactful. And I think we can't forget about those levers that we're actually very familiar in deploying. Um, it also has, you know, you were alluding to battery electric and hydrogen. It, it also represents a, a small wedge, but an important one, which is, you know, the transition of our regional aircraft, our smallest aircraft away from, you know, our traditional, traditional propulsion to things like uh, battery electric and hydrogen, which are zero carbon. Um, but keep in mind that was 45%. So of course the remaining roughly 55 is reducing via SAF. And, and, you know, when we look at that, we're looking at it as the SAF needed to hit net zero, particularly as we think as, as the SAF market scales in supply, we look at it as an expansion of today's commercial SAF technologies, but also future commercialized technologies, taking advantage of better and more sustainable feedstock in the future. So we've kind of broken it out in a way where we're also sort of saying the way we need to transition a SAF market, recognizing it's very nascent today, but um, certainly when we get to those scales, it won't just be made one way through one sort of feedstock source. Right. So how much SAF 
does United plan to use in the coming years? It's probably like whatever we can get our hands on, um, but I'll let you tell it. Um, and, and what companies um, is United partnering with and, and sort of what was that decision selection process? What is that like for you all having to sort of make those decisions? Yeah. Um, well, there is some, some element to whatever we can get our hands on, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, you can't really have the SAF conversation without sort of highlighting the, um, the very constrained supply we have today. Right. right so, right. um, you know, the demand was, the, the demand was always there waiting, you know, it, it's unlike other sorts of, um, fuel types that I've seen over the years in my career where the, you really had to sort of push you know, the, the industry involved or whatever to, to do uptake of a fuel. This, I've always said that in aviation, it's completely the opposite. They've always been wanting that fuel to, it's always been like the demand is waiting for the supply, hungering for the supply. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a bit of a chicken or egg just because there's a reason there's a limited supply, right? And if, if demand were the only answer, we would have solved it, right? There, there are just, um, there are reasons why uh, the truth is SAF costs a lot more than, than jet fuel today. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are multiple reasons for that. You know, it's, um, it's overcoming the capital requirements to build net new facilities. It's an arbitrage with other renewable products you could make using the same feedstock. And, and in truth, they're just thermodynamic hurdles that we're not going to solve, but right. exist in when you want to create a synthetic jet molecule. So, you know, but to go back to your your question, I mean, we we today fly billions of gallons uh, on on billions of gallons of jet fuel. So we're going to need billions of gallons of SAF. And that's that's kind of a eye popping number. Um and and we've we've certainly secured rights to future supply that in aggregate is in the billions, but um, that needs to be commercialized. And and there are several sort of avenues and levers that can facilitate that. But there's a really limited n- number of suppliers in the market today, mm-hmm. um, and and so I think part of it is kind of understanding why that is the case. And how can you sort of replicate it? The good news is, to your point, because there is such overwhelming demand, because it is mm-hmm. such an important and increasingly important topic, um, we are seeing existing suppliers grow their their assets and grow their capacity. So we think production, obviously production is, is sort of signaled at increasing. We see incumbent oil and gas um, sort of introducing staff. You know, there are existing suppliers we want them to transition as well, right? If they're going to make fuel, we would like it to be um, sustainable and we'd like it to be renewable. And then I think what's really encouraging is the innovation and the R&D that we're seeing to really kind of remove the hurdles. Like, I don't think basic laws of thermodynamics are going to be undone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> through through academia. Although, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to stand right. corrected and watch a Nobel Prize. Right, right, right. exactly, exactly. Right. It's, like, um, it's like gravity. There's, there's just no getting around that. Exactly. Yeah. But I think um, there are inefficiencies that are just kind of baked in because of the way we've always commercialized and scaled certain technologies. And so what's really encouraging is seeing 
the sort of pipeline of early stage R&D, low technology readiness level, those opportunities that are ripe for investment and or just, hey, this technology could be applied toward aviation. Did you consider that? Sometimes that's all it takes. It's These are aviation's, um, I would say, carbon problem is not distinct and alone from the world's. And so there are a lot of kind of clean energy dependencies. Um, today, if there's a SAF supplier, um, we are in active conversation and or are purchasing from them. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. But um, would love to be in a place where it is as diverse in um, geography, in supply location as the conventional fuel market is today. I mean, that's really what we're looking to do is, is replicate something that works in certain parts, mm-hmm. but doesn't in terms of its feedstock. So can you talk about United's SAF program and this, and in particular, the Sustainable Flight Fund. I mean, that's a fairly new uh, program that United has. And and what's been the reaction uh, to the program from from customers, from industry, from government, from stakeholders out there? Yeah, I think um, the Sustainable Flight Fund is really exciting. You know, we're talking about the early stage technologies and even mid-stage technologies. United decided a few years ago to launch our United Airlines Ventures um, Corporate Venture Capital Fund. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, within the decarbonization vertical of that fund, already about a half a dozen companies along the SAF value chain that are part of the investment portfolio. So there there was... um, an understanding among our stakeholders and, you know, really people like our alliance partners, our airplane OEMs, our, you know, technologists in the SAFT or in renewable space, that we were really, um, we were really leading and and signing the checks behind it, right? We were, mm-hmm. um, we recognized investment in this space, scaling the availability of these fuels is so critical. Like, let's just, invest, right? Because we need to, we need it to grow. And then the SAF, the SAF will at that point come. So um, the sustainable flight fund is really an expansion of that, that decarbonization vertical we had within United Airlines Ventures. And in fact, earlier this year is when we launched it, uh, the first round of our, of the sustainable flight fund with, um, you know, we raised capital from that ecosystem of stakeholders mm-hmm. and, and essentially it's increased our investment power. So our anchor partners we launched with are Air Canada, Boeing, JP Morgan Chase, um, GE Honeywell, or, um, uh, GE Aviation and, and Honeywell UOP. And with our investment portfolio, we've, we're also able to secure rights to that fuel. So when I said that we've negotiated billions of gallons of future fuel offtake that's the supportive demand signal and strategic support that we can provide to our portfolio companies. And so that kind of the duality of, hey, we're strategic support, it's investment capital, but it's also somebody who is understanding how to get the fuel into the airport and is actually yeah. buying it today, has that awareness and is creating a demand signal. It's born a really successful strategy Um and you know this inv- this very thoughtful investment thesis, um, it's creating supply. I mean, it really, really mm-hmm. is in SAF. But then the other pieces, the response we're seeing has been so overwhelmingly positive. 
you know, talking to policymakers, talking to um, other airlines, you know, this isn't a hyper-competitive arena. We all need everyone to, to help scale this industry. And in fact, you can see that in the fact that one of our anchor partners is another airline. So right. this is de-bottlenecking. De um, and de-risking, right? I mean, it's de-risking, which right. is really what's required to scale up some of these technologies now. Yeah. And we've seen the, you know, the really large investment capital, the the sort of infrastructure investment that is going to be the billions and trillions of dollars we need to actually build these assets. We've seen those markets respond and say, okay, who do you, what do you think is, what do you think about this technology? What do you think about this arena? So it's exciting to see that um, the type of investment that we will need to actually build facilities uh, is watching where even at, at the earliest stages where we're making investments. And that's that's really important. We need to not only unlock supply today, but to recognize the orders of magnitude in the future. So um, SAP is, is beginning to scale up just as you were talking about. Um, but in your view, is the pace fast enough for what the industry needs? And, and what do you see? And, and, and along those lines, what do you see as sort of both the biggest opportunities and the, the challenges in, in the space, especially as, as a customer? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to, um, I mean, firstly, it's very encouraging, the the SAF scale. It obviously needs to be exponential. And and I think um, ultimately it does boil down to the fact that SAF is more expensive than jet fuel for kind of all the reasons we chatted right. through. Um, but there, there are sort of ancillary mechanisms to lower that green premium, essentially, relative to jet fuel. And and while that major challenge is cost, the opportunity is kind of already underway by way of policy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that creates that bridge. So, you know, we saw the IRA last year that had the first ever federal level SAF incentive um, by way of the SAF lenders tax credit. Um, and then also a ton of state and local incentives. Even in the past six months, we've seen um, states like Illinois and Minnesota mm-hmm. join uh, existing incentives on the West Coast in California and Oregon. So um, there are there talks and there talks around implementing more of these kind of add-on incentive structures throughout the the country. And so I think that that is really really critical because that really answers for us. You know, we're talking about you can't change thermodynamics, you can't change um, the price of other competing products, but you can sort of answer for an externality. And I think that's where policy is a really exciting, um, an exciting way and opportunity to, to de-bottleneck um, the constraints we've seen so far. So I want to ask you more about that, but I want to come back to, to something and that concerns feedstock availability. And, um, you know, there are concerns, I mean, for some of those pathways, um, especially for hydro processed, um, fatty, uh, hydro processed <laughs> fatty acids, um, HEFA is what I'm used to calling it. Um, you know, that, that the, there's a lack of avail- availability. So how concerned 
is united about that? And what do you see kind of on the horizon? Do you think this is sort of a, you know, different pathways are going to scale up with different feedstocks, and this is an issue that's going to take care of itself um, over time, and then there'll be new feedstocks for production pathways like HEFA. Do you see sort of that all sort of working itself out um, over the next few years, or how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is always and not or. Um, particularly when it comes to SAF pathways, I get asked a lot about picking a winner and I, 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 I won't, I won't take the bait. <laughs> and, and I think you framed it, um, Tammy, you framed it really well, which is kind of all these different solves for what is absolutely going to be a feedstock constraint with HEFA, um, for sort of background, you know, HEFA takes fats, oils, and greases or fogs, because of course, yeah, you turn everything into an acronym. <laughs> Um, takes fats, oils, and greases, um, and converts them into, uh, into fuel. Right. And it's not a matter of if, but when, in terms of running out of those fats, oils, and greases. Um, so, so I think that there's kind of two pieces. One is absolutely other pathways. There are, um, sort of on the horizon, both, uh, pathways, you know, pathways like that are thermocatalytic. So taking things like woody biomass and with heat and catalysts, converting it to SAF. But I also think what's really exciting and promising, particularly maybe latter decade, early 2030s, is alcohol to jet. Yeah. And that's a pathway that takes any alcohol, but the ones we we often think about are ethanol, mm-hmm. um, but any alcohol molecule and converts that to, um, as the name suggests, to jet. Right, and right. so- we have 17 billion gallons of ethanol in the U.S., right? So they're already unlocks a size of feedstock constraint and concern that we see. And so that's why we've entered actually a joint venture with Tallgrass, who's a major oil mm-hmm. and gas infrastructure player and Green Plains, an ethanol producer, mm-hmm. um, to explore ways to really best convert those ethanol molecules to jet molecules. Right. Um, but you know that what we've got the assets in the ground today are hefa i mean you, you're absolutely right there so um really encouraged by your question which is will there be other hefa feedstocks and i think that's something we're exploring and thinking about more and more um so we're learning you can actually develop new feedstock for hefa yeah. um it's it's not without innovation but that's kind of another evolution I see in terms of leveraging what's already built, what's already steel in the ground, yeah. um, but answering for a, a lock. So, um, you know, I'll give a plug to one of our, our investment portfolio companies, but they're really exciting. They're called yeah. some Vita factory mm-hmm. and it's synthetic biology. So it's these bugs are going to eat CO2. And in just sort of understanding what these bugs could do, they found that some actually eat the CO2 and can make a lipid molecule. And 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 for sort of oh. to tie that all back together, all these fats, oils, and greases, at the end of the day, they're just lipids. Right, and right. That's really so it exciting. Looks a lot, exactly. Yeah, it looks a lot like soybean oil, what right. these little bugs are, are turning into. So, you know, the idea that you could actually take something that could eat CO2, so remove CO2, and then create a feedstock for existing SAF infrastructure that we're all building and scaling I mean, that to me is a great circularity story. And I think actually mm-hmm. would result in even lower life cycle greenhouse gas emissions Absolutely. than um, what we see today. 
And I think carbon intensity is the lower the carbon intensity, the better. And that is the name of the game. Yeah, (laughs) I think at at the end of the day, I think it's really exciting to see. Yeah, there's just so many possibilities out there. And I think given where we are with, with ESG, the need to really meet net zero investors and others will hold United and other companies feet to, to the fire, just given where policy is going um, and given where the incentives are going and given where I also think the refining industry is going, which they have the ability anyway to produce, you know, to switch, I think, from, from renewable diesel to SAF. And they have the ability. It doesn't mean they're going to do it, but they have the ability. Um, and I think the it's going to be an interesting time because what I see is, yeah, it'll be new feedstocks, new technologies, and new, and then scaling up of existing players and transitioning into um, that space. Um, And I see that happening, you know, frankly, before I see, you know, battery electric, maybe for short haul flights or even hydrogen, which I think is a longer timeframe or, you know, for power to liquid fuels, for example, that's sort of another solution that's sort of proposed out there. And I think those are longer horizon. What I see is the existing technologies we have improving and continuing to scale up um, further and further. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, we don't have a magic wand to do over (laughs) and just create a new, a brand new um, way of providing energy to aircrafts to get people around the world. And it's important to get people around the world. So I think we have to find ways to smartly transition using what's in the ground. Mm -hmm. We always have to recognize and aim to strive for better, right? So today's half a fuel, it's carbon intensity um, is not zero. You know, that's that's for sure the case. But if we wait for power to liquid to scale, we will be emitting a lot more carbon in the meanwhile. And so we yeah. need to transition. I, I guess ultimately we can't let perfect be the enemy of good here. Right, right. I am a low-hanging fruit gal. <laughs> yeah, <myself>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could remove millions and millions of tons based on what we know how to do today if we just find a way to put the shovels in the ground. Right. So let's let's go for it. Let's do it. <laughs> so the, the last question I have, I sort of want to come back around to what you were talking about with respect to policy, because you talked about clean fuel standards. You've talked about the Inflation Reduction Act and that creation for the first time of a sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. Uh, you talked about state policies now further um, incentivizing, like in Illinois, Minnesota, others further incentivizing SAF. Are those policies enough in United's view to really scale up the industry? And if not, what else do you see could be needed out there to to really get this industry scaling up further? Yeah, I think um, policy as an umbrella is huge. There's sort of the incentive um, legislations or regulatory pieces that, that you just mentioned, Tammy, but there's also grant funding, right? For early stage research, academia, um, we're seeing the DOE and the FAA issue grant dollars for specifically infrastructure to be able to blend SAF with conventional jet fuel Mm -hmm. for specifically, um, you know, 
different catalysts that can target a higher SAF yield for the same feedstock. Things like that are areas that, um, you know, there's a government assisted or a government support that certainly is is critical and we're seeing an increase in, which is huge. So I, I want to acknowledge kind of the various structures that that the government can sort of play here beyond just enacted policy, which is obviously all too critical. I think the other piece, you know, where the sort of that last little bit is, mm-hmm. is I touched on it a little bit before, but it's mm-hmm. really, how do we make sure that this isn't sort of a siloed problem to solve? Right. I, I so believe that SAF will only be able to scale as we sort of um, integrate that need with the broader energy transition. Mm-hmm. Power to liquids is a great example we know that there is an increased adoption of renewable energy around the world, but in North America, Europe, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, high aviation density areas. We also know that green hydrogen is a huge booming economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, carbon capture is too. These are all the critical building blocks. Mm-hmm. And we need those industries, those clean industries to scale, to be able to kind of tackle that final SAF pathway that I completely agree with you is mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit further along in the future in terms right. of commercialization. Um, so I think that, and, and another great example is corporate customers. Mm-hmm. We have our EcoSkies Alliance and that is our corporate customers came to us and said, hey, my travel emissions are kind of that last little bit yeah. that I need to hit net zero. How do we work together? And that is so powerful we are using three times as much SAF today because we are doing so in in you know in conjunction with our corporate customers and and the power of the collective purchase of SAF versus just United going it alone. So I would never suggest that it is mm-hmm. um, just one airline's problem to solve, just one industry's problem to solve. And in fact, there's so much advancement happening when we just make sure that we broaden our remit to not just an aviation problem, but sort of a global carbon problem. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's kind of a situation of many hands sort of making lighter work, not to be exactly. overly cliche. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, Rohini, thank you so much for coming on the program and talking to us about what United's doing. I think it's so, so important and um, the strides that the industry has made. I mean, in 10 years, I mean, even just a few years ago, no one was really, I mean, you all were talking about SAF and others in the industry were talking about SAF, but the broader public knew very little. I don't even think policymakers really sort of kind of got it unless you were like Department of Energy or, you know, the European Commission, uh, DG Energy, you know, like really, you or IATA or ICAO, you know, you really didn't know um, much about it. And now it's really out there and people are becoming comfortable knowing about it, hearing about it and being on those flights. So, you know, that's only been in the last, you know, I would say within the last five years, not even, maybe even three or four. So it, it's amazing what has evolved in a relatively quick timeline. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. I I, um, I love talking about this topic, but mostly I just love that every single time I do, I feel like everybody's really eager to, to understand how 
we all can help collectively scale SAF and, and that's been really encouraging. So um, I look forward to, to hearing more. Well, thanks again. Look forward to having you back on the show as things develop. <laughs> of course. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer and engineered by Alexander Nikolich. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.